the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I noticed that all of the gradual incrementalist anti-slavery people who hated the abolitionists of slavery were saying all the same arguments that I had been growing up hearing in pro-life churches. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor isn't an enslaved neighbor. My neighbor is the preborn. And oh, God broke me. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. We don't, we don't need 100% of the culture to become Christian. We need the professing Christians to be actively Christian, and God shows up. No one in the pro-life movement has no legitimate, full, fully recognized and organized pro-life organization, pro-life person that I know, or no right-thinking pro-life person has ever insti- uh, intimidated me with the thought of, of women who've had abortions being murderers. And like, I see what you're saying, like, is murder okay in like the womb? And I'm, I'm like, I see what you're saying, and I don't want to like say yes, now, yeah, but like, but, like I, I don't want to make that decision. But in, this, in these circumstances, you think we should be able to kill humans in the womb? <laughs> I think so, yeah. You do? I, yeah, I think that's what we're here for, and that's, it's our choice, and that's a choice that we are allowed to make. Yeah. Or yeah. for now. For now. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. That was a clip from Babies Are Still Murdered Here, which is a, a documentary, anti-abortion documentary that was just released a few weeks ago. I think it captures the somewhat of the essence of the debate between not just people who are pro-choice and pro-life, but people who are pro-life versus abolitionist. And there is a distinction that we got into a little bit um, back in episode 22 when I interviewed uh, Pastor John Speed, who is also interviewed in that documentary. Um, but in this podcast, I have promised you multiple angles on the same topic so that you can get a deeper understanding and like a 360 degree view of the situation and be better informed with the evidence and the arguments so that you can decide for yourself where you want to come down on an issue and just at least have a better, more empathetic sense of the positions of the people who disagree with you. And the reason that I interview people who have changed their minds is because that gives us this sort of 360 understanding from people who have been on both sides. Like if anyone really understands it, it should be those people. Um, and and I, I've, I've been very clear on this podcast what I think about abortion. I think it's the greatest human rights issue of our time and that the practice of abortion needs to end yesterday. There's no medical reason. There's no economic reason. There's no 
particular way a baby was conceived, no matter how horrible it is, that justifies killing an innocent human life. That's my, that's my view. Um, but that view, believe it or not, is, is at odds with what, with the views of most people who say they are against abortion. If you just talk to them in day to day conversation, or at least, you know, they say that we need to take a, a low and slow approach to ending abortion, um, mostly by appointing pro-life justices. And then there's also a difference in worldview if you really talk to people for longer than a couple seconds in terms of how they perceive of the parents, um, like how the parents are thought of in the abortion decision and, and their culpability and their frame of mind and and how abortion itself is characterized. Is it murder? Is it just some other form of homicide? Is it just a really sad thing that happens? What what do we do about it? How do we think about it? Those are all questions that we need to have answers to. So with me today is somebody who who made the the evolution from being more of that majority perspective to a distinctively minority one, <laughs> which we will get more into um, I- exactly what that entails. But uh, T. Russell Hunter, also goes by Russell Hunter, is an anti-abortion activist, abolitionist, and the founder of Abolish Human Abortion, which you can learn more about at abolishhumanabortion.com. Russell, thank you very much for joining me today. It's awesome to be here with you. Glad to hear it. Okay, what is Abolish Human Abortion? Really, the whole deal was to kind of systematize five distinct tenets that would sort of go with abolitionism that don't sort of line up with sort of distinct tenets or ideologies of the pro-life movement. And then to take those tenets and say, hey, if you hold to these tenets, you're an abolitionist and you can use this symbol to let people know that you're going, that you're for the abolition of human abortion. And so like we created that and we made that and we started spreading that and there's all these different abolitionist societies and stuff, but it's not something that I like man or anything on a day in day out. There's actually not a thing. And I think a lot of people are confused about that because they go, wait, wait, where does all this abolitionism come from? It was just the spread of the idea. It wasn't really cultivated from an organizational standing. Okay. So what do you do, Russell? What do you do professionally? I'm a legislative lobbyist working as an abolitionist, advocating abolition bills instead of pro-life bills at the state level. And, uh, you know, I work for Free the States, which is a 501c4 nonprofit organization that focuses on promoting legislation from an abolitionist perspective. So that's what I that's what I do professionally. Before we get started, um, Quick note to the listener, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast. We release an episode every Friday and every other week is a long form interview like interview like this where we talk to somebody really interesting and really dig deep into why they're why they changed their minds. And it's a lot of fun. And um on bi weekly episodes we also do some I also do some news analysis and then we do analysis of these interviews and yeah so you should you should always join me for that every friday so if you have a friend or two or a dozen who would find this episode interesting go ahead and hit that little share icon and tell them why you think they should listen to this podcast and this episode in particular and with that we can go ahead and get into the meat of the subject okay 
So, Russell, before we get started, I want there's there's there, there's like a lot of confusion and ambiguity about terms and how people define themselves in this whole pro-life thing, pro-choice, um pro-abortion, abolitionists, um you know, incrementalism versus abolitionism and all of that. What is abolition and what makes it different from other um more mainstream pro-life opinions? Sure. Um, that could be the whole hour, but, uh, um, I think it's important to have these distinctions. They're not just tribal or, you know, they're not just about branding. They, they really do have meaning. So when I call myself an abolitionist, it's because I want to be very clear about what it is that I want to see happen in regard to abortion or a particular evil and the way that we're going to go about removing that evil. And because there's so much ambiguity and there's so much, you know, pro-lifers can mean all these different things, you know, um, as the opening clip that you shared, you know, you can have pro-life leaders say no pro-lifer thinks X. And then you're like, well, wait, but what about all the people who think X that are anti-abortion? What do they call themselves? So these terms, I think, are super important and not something that we should shy away from. So with that being said, an abolitionist is someone who believes, and, and I'll use abortion, but it could be different evils. You know, every age has a particular evil and and to deal with it. So every age has abolitionists, but I'm going to use abortion in all these sentences. But so an abolitionist believes that abortion is murder and as murder, it ought to be abolished. The laws protecting or permitting or allowing abortion, those laws ought to be abolished because abortion being murder, that puts it in contrast to a higher law, like the higher law of God, and those lower laws in relation to that higher law being contrary to it must be abolished, so completely and utterly removed. Um, abolitionists generally also distinctly from pro-lifers believe that the mechanism by which we abolish abortion is not gradual, incremental, piecemeal, regulatory, because it doesn't make any sense to gradually allow something while you're also trying to abolish it. So an abolitionist doesn't say, you know, uh, like, like the pro-lifers would go to the Capitol and stump for a 20-week abortion ban, which is in effect allowing abortion up to 20 weeks. And, you know, the abolitionist says, well, listen, no, I'm for the abolition of abortion in and of itself, not the reduction or the regulation or the curtailment of abortion. I want to be very clear. It's abortion from the moment of conception um, without exception and that that's what I'm calling for right now. Now, even if it doesn't happen overnight or even if it doesn't happen, um, you know, in the year that you're calling for it that's what you call for. And it may, it may be that you end up causing it to be abolished gradually as a result for immediately calling for abolition, but you never call for piecemeal. You never call for regulation. So a pro-lifers generally will call for regulation, doing things that reduce abortion numbers um, and that sort of thing. And it's because they are genuinely pro-life. Um, they want to save babies, but they can't. They don't think that the way to save babies is to to adopt an uncompromising posture 
but to compromise and save as many as you can. Abolitionists, we don't believe that compromising with evil is a good way to fight evil. Um, okay, so, and that, so that's generally the the incrementalist approach. The incrementalist in contrast and, and, to abolition. Yeah, more could be, maybe be said. I mean, abolitionists are generally we're we're invoking a higher law, so it's a very specific theologically girded. Um, view like you don't have right really a lot of secular abolitionists you could have a secular immediatist or anti-incrementalist but an abolitionist is generally going to say yes abortion sin it's murder the answer to abortion is the gospel people can repent people can believe in christ and be saved but in regard to our laws okay it ought to be legal all right so you used to subscribe to the traditional pro-life incrementalist perspective in reducing abortion enabled in, in order to eventually el- eliminate it presumably um yeah so, so what i was, was kind your... of more the apathetic version though yeah like i was i was the guy who was pro-life because i was a baptist <laughs> pro-life because i was a republican and my wife and i even gave like a hundred dollars a month to the cpc because they came and asked for it but i was like not really thinking about any of it right you know yeah, it's not. I don't come from like I was formerly the head of some pro life organization. Yeah, embedded, but yeah. So what what was your first? You you mentioned being a Baptist. What was your first exposure to that perspective, and why do you think that that kind of stuck in the back of your brain as you were being mm-hmm. passive the, about it? Um. Well, so the pro life perspective. I mean, it was just always there. But the abolitionist perspective, um, I was actually reading 19th century abolitionists of slavery um, because I was working um, in 19th century Darwin studies. Right, but did you, just to rewind really quick, but did you, do you remember back when, you know, there were, was there somebody who was pro-life who came to your church or was it watching news coverage or reading books or like, how did it get into your head to begin with that, like, just a general yeah, anti Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm pro-life and I'm, I'm for anything that um, reduces the number of abortions. Yeah, I mean, um, at the church that I was going to, you know, guys like Greg Cunningham were invited and came and did some training things. And I remember them. I don't remember those things like convincing me that abortion was wrong. Like, I mean, I know some people are very moved by the graphic images and stuff. Um, and that wasn't distinctly convincing for me. I know it is for others. Um, but I think when I became a Christian, it seemed to me very clear that, you know, that the whole thou shalt not murder. So I think I was always latently sort of an abolitionist in the sense of this is murder. It shouldn't go on. But strategically, because I wasn't someone who was thinking about it, I wasn't comparing the fruits or the biblicalness or, um, the, you know, the strengths or weaknesses of different ideologies. I just thought, you know, listen, Jesus made us, we shouldn't, you know, children are a blessing. They're a gift from God, killing the gift, destroying the blessing. That's, that's, that's not good. So I am pro-life, but I yeah, did. That's generally that the pers- perspective that I held for most of my life too. Yeah. And it's not, and it was, it was not something that I thought wasn't important to think about. I did think that other people were thinking about it. Like I had my issues and they had their issues and I would vote for them and that sort of thing. But I wasn't, I wasn't delving into it at, at any 
serious degree until about 2011. Okay, so, so what changed? Um, well, there was a, a whole bunch of stuff that God was doing in my life, uh, straightening me out. Um, but as I was reading 19th century abolitionists, generally, um, like, and I'm talking like hardcore, like PhD student, like delving into it. Um, and at the same time, I'm at this Southern Baptist church where I'm in this sort of like apologetics course where I have to sort of be studying the pro-life arguments. And I noticed in history that there are generally three groups of people fighting slavery. There's the gradual abolitionist, the, the sort of like anti-slavery people who are incrementalist and regulationist, but not total abolitionist. Then you have these total abolitionists that are sort of like preaching repentance for their nations and against the sin of chattel slavery. And then, of course, you have the pro-slavery people. And I noticed that all of the gradual incrementalist anti-slavery people who hated the abolitionists of slavery were saying all the same arguments that I had been growing up hearing in pro-life churches. And, you know, all from, from don't be too harsh, don't really call this sin, don't really bring the gospel into it, don't make it a religious thing, make it a, just a human thing. And um, they're doing those. And then sort of the focus on incrementalism and why incrementalism had to be done you, trusting in courts, trusting in, um, you know, like war horses and chariots, the pragmatism. I noticed all of that in sort of the bad guys in the story of the history of the abolition of slavery. And then I looked at the pro-life movement and I'm like, the pro-life movement is by and large one and the same with this sort of ineffective, basically historians now say kind of like, compromising pro-slavery in deed, but not in word group. That was the majority conservative position or not conservative, but the majority religious position in the 19th century. So that was what started it. I'm kind of like looking at William Wilberforce and William Lloyd Garrison in Britain and America as well. And noticing that these guys were tremendously talented. They were very intellectual and very good, devoted guys who could have kind of been anything, and yet they kind of gave up their careers to love their neighbors as themselves. And so I'm sitting here thinking, I'm looking at all this stuff intellectually, also looking at myself and going, what am I doing? And I'm not really loving my neighbor as I love myself. I'm like, who is my neighbor? My neighbor isn't an enslaved neighbor. My neighbor is the preborn. And so God kind of broke me about my own apathy at the same time that I happened to be doing this kind of deep, historical stuff. And so I think that I converted to a William Wilberforce, William Lloyd Garrison, um, heart attitude towards my neighbors at the same time, adopting their, their ideological commitments to immediatism and, um, the gospel being the answer. Were there any quotes or lines that jumped out to you when you were reading that you found really persuasive. Why, why not mm -hmm. the incrementalist approach, right? If it's saving babies, why not? Yeah. I mean, there was, there were some, um, there's kind of a famous sort of event that happens where William Lloyd Garrison in America is, is being asked to speak on behalf of colonization, which was sort of like the focus only on helping them get out of the country view. Um, 
sort of tantamount to sort of uh, a lot of the views today, sort of like, let's let's encourage plantation owners to freely manumit their slaves and let's help them get jobs until there are none, sort of, and then there were none sort of perspective. And he's going to speak um, on July 4th about this American colonization view. And uh, he's, I get, you can tell from his writing and his letters that he's having problem problems with it, but he sees an auction block and he's kind of like, yeah, my promotion of this sort of long, gradual abolition of slavery does not help that mother who's being separated from her child right now. And, um, you know, reading that stuff in history, I'm kind of like, just like our gradual pro-lifey stuff doesn't help anyone now. You know, it's like it almost kind of like abandons the people now. Um, so I think reading things like that, th- those may not move other people so much, but to me, it was kind of saying, it's kind of looking at these historical figures and saying, who would I have been in this narrative? Would I have been the person that was willing to sort of, to let these, these slaves, you know, be mistreated or would I have been the person who was like sort of standing up and saying, no, this is a sin unto God and we need to repent of it immediately. Um, but yeah, they, not probably not a particular um, quote, but an overall body of material. What would also you- seeing one one historian after another say that basically all of the schemes, like every time that someone put forward something to reduce slavery, all it did is sort of regulate it and make it stronger. And so, like after the forty years or so of this anti-slavery gradualism and regulation. There being Do you have no an example group. of that? Like uh, of a specific type of law that they would pass? Yeah, or like a genre of yeah. laws. Yeah, so so in Britain, um, and a lot of people get William Wilberforce all mixed up because he, he did file the bill of immediate abolition of the slave trade like over and over and over and over again. So they think him filing it over and over and over again for a long period of time is incrementalism. But his bill always was for the abolition of the slave trade. But other people would come along and they would file bills for the gradual abolition of the slave trade, um, setting some date in the future. Um, and a number of those would be filed and then that date would get there and they wouldn't really put them into action. Other things like regulatory bills would be sort of like, you know, hey, there's they're putting 350 slaves on this particular kind of vessel. Let the, and that's really inhumane. So let's get it down to 250. And Wilberforce would put forward his bill and people wouldn't vote for the abolition of the slave trade, but they would to sort of salve themselves vote for this, like the Dalbin Act to make less slaves on the ship so that less slaves would die. And so this is all seemingly in the name of helping them. But, you know, five years later, even the slave traders themselves are saying, actually, we lose less lives in the Atlantic slave trade. And it actually has improved our profit share. Um, and it's actually better that we're regulating this, you know. Um, and so seeing something like that and then getting on the news and seeing that pro-lifers are wanting to make sure that um, abortion clinics are close to hospitals so that less women, like women who like a perforated uterus or something like that, are able to be um, ambulanced to a hospital nearby and, and helped. Um you know, that actually sort of improves abortion because it's sort of saying, look, we've cleaned it up. It's safer. It's more humane. And the abortionists themselves 
they may be at first vexed because they have to move their clinic from one area of town to another. But in the end, it's just made them stronger. So the babies that they're aborting now are done in accordance with these pro-life laws, just like the slave traders. Then, you know, someone comes along and says, you guys are horrible to these slaves. And they could say something like, listen, no, actually we, we have increased our, we've made it safer and cleaner and better. So, I mean, it's specific things like that. Like the same thing with like um, using anesthesia and right. late-term abortions. Yeah, like, you know, if, you, if your argument is, is we need to ban abortion at 20 weeks because they feel pain, well, the converse ar- argument from the pro-choice side is, is like, okay, well, let's start giving them anesthesia at 20 weeks so that they don't feel pain. And a woman can still terminate her child. And so you do this sort of back and forth cat and mouse thing that by, you know, after decades of that, the the abortionist is is saying, I am doing everything that you're telling me to. You don't want me to cause them pain. I did this. You don't want me to do it in, in an unsafe place. I did this. You wanted me to have this license. I did this. So they comply with all these things, but they never sort of say, no, we don't want you doing it. Abortion. Like, we don't, that's the murder part. Um. Yeah, so there, there. I mean, if we were sitting down and having sort of like a look through a bunch of books, there are just tons of laws like that that are that are proposed um, over time that were were said to be helping the slave, but they weren't. Um, you know, even even laws like colonization, like let's help the slave by deporting them to Liberia or Africa or something. Well, these slaves have been in you know America. They're like third generation Americans. They're not Africans anymore. Um, they don't want to be deported. They want to be free. And so people say, I'm doing the nice thing when they're not. Right. What would you say to people who say, who would say that like, yes, we fought a civil war over this. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, but then really getting African-Americans to the same equal status under the law after that point was incremental, right? Like success came incrementally. What would you say to those people? Well, I think success does usually come incrementally. Um, (laughs) The the success does, but it never comes at all without a demand for change. Um, So you like, so what, what really happens is in the 1830s, the abolitionists are calling for total and immediate abolition. And the slavery people say, you know, no way. And the, and the anti-slavery majority in the North says, um, we agree that slavery needs to be abolished, but it should be done gradually. And everyone drags their feet and nobody responds to the abolitionists. And then by 1859, when you have this war going on, it has to be about slavery. Um, and so... It's, and I think the war is caused by the refusal of the North and the South to repent. And so after the war is won, Lincoln has to ask uh, an amendment. He has to get his cabinet and get his people behind an amendment to abolish slavery. Because if he doesn't, all the claims that the war was about slavery are shot. And it's likely that because of abolitionists and their agitation, a war will just begin again or something else. So these things, of course, all happen gradually as a result of the constant call for total and immediate abolition in the thirties. It takes till the, you know, sixties for the country to start getting it right. Now you say, okay, so we abolished 
slavery, but it took all the way through the civil rights movement to get actual sort of equal rights, right? Well, even then, if you go and you read Martin Luther King, like he's got a book called Why We Can't Wait, and it's actually an argument against the incrementalist of his time. If you read his letter from a Birmingham jail, it's actually an argument against the incrementalist of his time because people always come forward and they say, listen, how about we just settle on getting the right to ride anywhere we want on the bus? And then Martin Luther King's like, no, I want the right to vote completely equally. And they're like, well, well, well. So you always have modern, moderate sort of gradualist coming along to delay the abolition. And that's why it takes time. It's not because it's not because people can't immediately repent. It's because people always put forward these sort of delaying countermeasures like Martin Luther King's calling for complete equality. And people say, how about partial equality? You know, you know, Nixon or, or not Nixon, but Johnson or whoever comes in and says, how about partial equality? That's what delays it. Um, but the question wouldn't even be happening were it not for the abolitionist type person, the immediatist saying, no, this is evil. This is sin. This is wicked. Has to be ended. We've got to have rights. Without pushing for that, you're stuck with whatever the gradualists are calling for at the time. Um, some people actually were putting forward bills to abolish slavery, like by the ni- like 1927 is one of them, you know, and it's like, well, if we wouldn't have fought the war and all that kind of stuff, we would have gradually abolished it by 1927 when it would have been better for our economy. Well, that's that may have been without a war, but that's all those lives being enslaved for so many more decades longer. So better than all that would have just been for the country to repent and actually go with what the abolitionists were calling for instead of putting forward all these sort of delaying gradual mechanisms. Okay, so you talk about repentance, and you said that basically abolitionism is is at its core a, a Christian movement, right. a Christian ideology. Why, why is that? And... What it, you you know you talk about repentance? What mm-hmm. is it? Isn't it? Can't people? I mean, I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here, but can't people just not necessarily repent to God, but just decide like, um, this isn't this isn't a good idea anymore? You know, it's 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 yeah. it's bad for it's bad for women, and here's the the studies and the data to prove it. And, right. you know, we, we have all this scientific knowledge and we know it's a human life and we can't deny that anymore. So it just it just makes sense to move yeah. forward with reducing or eliminating abortion. What What's so important yeah. about repentance and why does this have to be a Christian movement? Yeah, well, sometimes people will ag- ag- adopt a view that has been brought about by people repenting and so they just sort of inherit a view like people today sort of inherit the view that all men are created equal that black people and white people should be fairly treated because they're both made in the image of god or what they they sort of like have this view that they're anti-slavery and they're anti-racism or whatever but they may not have the foundations for why that view is true or where that view came from um so i think that eventually in the future sort of absent like a total revival and, you know, the world becoming thoroughly Christian or something, 
there will be people after we've abolished abortion who just sort of take it for granted that, yeah, abortion is bad and we don't do that. And that's inhumane. And they could be atheists and agnostics or whatever, who just sort of like adopt the view that we fight Kind of the same way that atheists and agnostics adopt the view of pro-lifers currently. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, it's, it is a sensical position now that they may adopt the pro-life view personally, but they may not want to impose that on other people. Um, and, and all those different schemes. But I think that like for those of us who are trying to move that needle and move everyone in the culture, you know, you say, well, does everybody have to repent? Well, no, not everybody has to repent. But those of us who are sort of devoting our lives to this, obviously it's because we've repented of something, of our own um, participation in abortion, our own abortion apathy. We've repented of it. And that's why we're devoting ourselves wholly to it. And those of us who are Christians, we're going to take what the Bible says about repentance very seriously. And so like when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off or your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, you know? And so that's like this idea of repeating, uh, repenting totally and immediately. And finally, you know, not sort of allowing the sin to fester. You know, if you're in an adulterous affair and someone calls you out on it and you sort of say, okay, yeah, I need to get out of this adulterous affair instead of, rendezvousing with someone every week it's going to be down to two weeks every two weeks and then it's going to be down to once a month and then one you know only on vacations if you try to gradually repent of an evil it keeps the evil around and it keeps you from from getting rid of it so like a biblical view of dealing with sin is that way and biblically speaking it's the same with sort of communities cities nations you know you don't you don't find the law and read the law of God and then sort of say, okay, we're going to put some of this into play. Like King Josiah is like, no, we're going to put all of this into play. Um, we're going to repent. And he leads the nation to repent, tear, tear down child sacrifice, um, you know, idols and all that thing. And so that biblical view of repenting and treating evil as evil, I think is so foundational to the abolitionist view not simply because it's biblical, but because it actually works. Like if somebody doesn't really repent, they don't really get rid of the thing. They keep it around always. You know, we got to have abortion, you know, for the this case or that case when it, when it seems like, you know, it might be justified. Well, you would never think that if you thought abortion was murder and you had to repent of it entirely. So that, yeah. I think that, that probably seeing abortion as sin and giving a biblical answer to it for both the individual and for the community is probably the foundational bedrock why an abolitionist goes one way and a pro-lifer goes the other way. Yeah, I was going to say it seems like repentance is really, really key to the difference in it, the difference between being an incrementalist traditional pro-lifer and being an abolitionist because the idea of repentance implies that there's guilt mm -hmm. and i th think do you think i mean that's where people get correct me if i'm wrong but i think that that's where a lot of people get tripped up is this this idea that there's 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 guilt in involved in committing an abortion mm -hmm. did you yeah. did you come to change i mean did you come to be convicted about uh culpability as as far as the the woman is concerned or, or the parents are concerned at the yeah. same time where you, you realized all of this other stuff or did that come a little bit later? 
It came a little bit later because I've been in, in I've been inundated with that. So like on Sanctity of Life Sundays, all those sermons and the various little videos and stuff that are shown, the pro life movement basically indoctrinates people to believe that the women who are getting abortions, one they call them women. They never really call them mur- mothers, you know. But the mothers who are murdering their children don't know what they're doing or they're all being forced or none of them would do it if they just had someone who would buy them diapers, you know, like all that stuff is so inundated. And what really changed that for me was actually going out to abortion mills, you you know, these so-called clinics where you go out there, you see BMWs and these Land Rovers and people getting out. You try to talk to people. It's not like they're confused about what they're doing. They're literally there because they are with child and they don't want to be with child. Men are not anywhere near as ignorant as the pro-life movement says they are. They know that there's a little baby inside of them. Um, So they're completely aware. Now, you could find a counterexample here and there, but we're talking the 3,000 abortions that happen every day are not being carried out by, you know, sort of these like mindless women who are being forced to do it. Lots of them are completely aware of what they're doing, and they're doing it with permission of the father or their parents and all these kinds of things. So going out to the meals and, and talking to people um, convinced me that, no, 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 it isn't the case that they're not culpable. Um, and then also sort of the logic of it all, um, you know, abortionists do not go out in the culture looking for babies to kill. They just don't. Um, without the parents bringing the child to them, abortionists wouldn't kill any um, children. So thinking about the logic of it, saying like, okay, so who is the principal here? Um, the abortionist is sort of the paid assassin who has the technology to do it safely. But who is it that really is um, making the decision here? Um, and and what do I think is leading her to that decision? Well, all the pro-life, I guess, myths, which I would say they're myths now, they didn't ever take into consideration seriously the idea that people are sinners and people do love themselves more than they love God and that men and women are both alike sinners before God and will do whatever they can to stay on the throne. And so, and, and, and usually our sin rolls down on our children. So I don't think that it's helpful to, to, to always be saying, you know, Women regret their abortions and they're coerced and we need to just come alongside you and tell you that you're you're forgiven, that you were sinned against, that like the abortion was done to you. Like so all well, this why language- would you need forgiveness if it was something that was just done to you? Yeah. Like that oh, doesn't yeah. even well, make sense. Yeah, and 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 so yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think the abolitionist who is always being accused of being so heartless is the one that's actually saying, no, no, it's totally murder. You're totally culpable for, before God. But guess what? There is grace. There's forgiveness in Christ. And you can repent of murder because we know a God who can forgive and does forgive murderers. So what seems to be what is said to be the harsh view is actually the the sort of beautiful gospel view wherein we're extending this new life to these mothers. And um, and I think that pro-life view, which is popularly held to be more Christian and more kind, is actually a very damning view, which leaves a lot of people in sin. And I've met them. I'm sure many of the listeners of this podcast have met them where someone 
is working in a crisis pregnancy center and they say they regret their abortion, but then they give you this list of, you know, all the reasons that they, that they got it, um, that they got it, that they aborted their child. And when you start talking to them, like, well, have you ever given this to God? They keep putting up all these excuses and you see that they're still, they're still burdened by it, you know? And then you meet someone that's sort of like, nope, I totally murdered my child because I was, you know, interested in the dance scene and I was a selfish, wicked person, but Christ has forgiven me. And that person seems to be filled with so much more joy. This person that says like, I am a former murderer redeemed by a living God versus the person who's like sort of never really given it to God. So seeing those people over time, going to clinics and everything um, has totally, I, I reject most of the pro-life indoctrination, even if you can find a counterexample here and there, it is not the vast majority. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I I hear from pro-lifers is they do say things like most most women are experience immense pressure, most women are coerced, most women face this, that, or the other thing, and they'll show studies with percentages and things like that. And you're like, okay, so I mean, what do you, what, what do you say in, in that circumstance? Because what, what I've said is, but you just said most. So if it's not all, then where does that leave us? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that also the studies are asking um, people who have committed this sin, Hey, did you commit this sin? completely aware of what you're doing or do you want to blame somebody else you know i mean i mean it's it's a kind of study that is immediately skewed from the beginning so if we're thinking about human beings as sort of depraved and that we are always looking for we're always looking you know since the fall we're looking to blame somebody else for our sin instead of just saying i'm a sinner um you know i need forgiveness I think that that's what, where you get these studies. You know, I've known people who say, yeah, I was coerced. And then you're like, well, what was, what was going on there? You know, and lo and behold, it's like, they're in a, they're in an affair with somebody who they shouldn't be in an affair with. And whenever she got pregnant, she was like, what do I do? And he was like, you better abort this or, or, you know, I'm telling your husband. Well, then she says, look, see, I was forced. Well, it was this long line of decisions that you were making and doing, which led to the death of that child. Even if there was a a man in there encouraging it, you know, and even in the most extreme cases where, you know, someone says, listen, I was date raped. Now, date rape is just side note, love abortion, right? I mean, that is true. Men love abortion because abortion removes their responsibility. But so like a uh, a woman who who finds themselves pregnant from a one night stand or a date rape or something like that, um, you know, it's our culture that the pro life movement would say that our culture sort of encourages her to get abortion. So she's she's not really to blame because everything around her said just go go get rid of this baby. You know, the dad's not around. You don't know who it was and all this kind of stuff. There's nothing you can do. Just go get rid of this baby and cover it up. Um, even in that situation she's given the option of answering evil with evil. And I don't buy this view that like she can't because so many women do, you know, in that exact situation, say, listen, I was sinned against by my rapist. 
but I'm not going to sin against my child in response to it. I don't think that's going to help. And um, so if it's true that these women choose life, to use that phrase, in this situation, I don't think that it's fair to all the women who choose to abort their children to say that they didn't have the ability to choose otherwise. I think we always have the ability to choose otherwise. And it's and, and even if it's very hard to stand up to someone who's encouraging us, um, that's what we have to do, especially for our own children. Um, and, it, and, and, and furthermore, just an evidential point of view, I think when they say forced abortion or coerced, that could mean everything from the father of the child saying something like, we have to do this. Remember, like we have plans and I'm going to marry you in the future, but we'll, we'll choose. Jo- and, and that being just enough of what the mother herself wants to hear that she does it because she secretly does want it. And then later on, she'll say that she was coerced, but really it's not coerced. Not in that, and not in that sense. No, the counter example is like, no, there are some people who are actually forced a stepfather raping a 13 year old um, and then taking her to get the abortion against her will. That does happen, but that yeah, wouldn't absolutely. happen. That wouldn't happen as much if it were abolished as murder. You know, you wouldn't have the places on the street next to Brahms or McDonald's where you could go get an abortion. So if you really do care about the woman who's actually being forced to do it, and you want to stop her from being forced to do it, take away the completely legal permitted right to, to murder babies, you know, because that's what the rapist and um, the man who's coercing her, or forcing her needs. So the whole thing's hollow. I, I mean, so all those studies and everything, um, it doesn't change my fundamental belief that human beings are morally responsible agents or that even if they're completely unaware and they don't understand what's happening that doesn't matter for our laws our laws should be a tutor to them like the whole argument that women don't know they're getting they're they're murdering their babies or that they're being forced well that shouldn't have any bearing on what the legislators and the executives in a state do they say listen women are being forced to get abortions let's make abortion a criminal act so it's very difficult to force them to get abortions Let's run around shutting down every way, every place, every product that can be used to, uh, to murder a child in the womb. That's how you help women who are being coerced into abortions. You don't say, okay, we got to keep it legal right. so they can continue to be coerced. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Would you, have, would you have been convinced of abolitionism if you hadn't started reading people like William Wilberforce? Or you hadn't been forced in like this apologetics class to examine mm-hmm. those arguments, would you have gotten there eventually, or would you have sort of just kept being the the passive person who I, identifies as pro life? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know that that's what God used, and um, I don't know. I de- I've done some study about whether anybody else was calling on this sort of thing so consistently in 2010 or 11 and and I can't really find it but I think eventually I'd like to think that eventually sort of the logic of the prophets like if you read all the prophets in the old testament they are all immediatist you know if you read read the relationship between Moses and Pharaoh it's very much total immediate abolition I'd like to think that eventually just you know growing in the grace and knowledge of God and reading the bible would have led me to abolition but um seeing and learning from the people in history 
has opened things up. Now, there are things that we are, I mean, it's kind of hard to say, in advance of them. Like abolitionism has developed over time and become even more strong today than it was in the 19th century or the 18th century. So I think that, you know, the Holy Spirit has been actively leading people into more of an understanding and to to apply the word of God better. So if I didn't, I like to think that if I didn't see this on my own, someone else who had seen it and was saying stuff on Facebook or whatever, I would have seen it and said, yeah, I'm with the abolitionist. I'm not with this standard pro-life thing. But why that doesn't happen today, I mean, I think there's all all sorts of things that kind of keep it from happening today. But I think that there's a a lot of social pressure not to sort of move from abolition to pro-life. And there's a lot of things that are said about abolitionists to try to keep people from thinking about their view. Right. And my next question was actually what, what things do you think hold people back from embracing abolitionism or or have people convinced or seem like good arguments to people to to be on the incrementalist track like what are the top things that yeah. ha- you have seen in your work make mm-hmm. the difference in people saying no you know i'm i'm just i'm not into that I think if you have someone who's willing to actually look at it, they generally become abolitionist. Like if they really are willing to look at it and they really are, um, especially if they really are Christians and they're open to sort of um, the word of God being an authority or the spirit of God. Um, uh, but the key isn't convincing them. The key is getting them to look at it in the first place. Um, I think it's so abundantly true. I think that um, abolitionism is so uh, right over incrementalism or over regulationism that even the leaders in the pro-life establishment know this and they know that they don't really have a really solid argument for why we should compromise with abortion in the, in the, in the fight against abortion, why we should support ageism in the fight against ageism. They know that like, if they really go down the argument, the intellectual argument road, they're going to lose. So in order to keep people from going down that road, what they do is uh, pile on the slander and the misinformation. So they say, these abolitionists are bad because they're all this way. Or like, I had this experience with this abolitionist who did this thing. Or abolitionists hate the church. Abolitionists um, don't go to church. They say all these things, like worldly folks, they say these things in order not to like win the argument, but to keep you from ever looking at the argument. Because I think they know that once people who have sort of an open mind um, look at it, it's not very long before they become abolitionist. But do so, you think people? Do you think people are are purposefully slandering abolitionists, or do you think that they genuinely have an, impre- an impression based off mm-hmm. of the people that they've they've encountered or the things that they've seen on social media that abolitionists yeah. are a certain way? Like I know. Abby Johnson tweeted not that long ago. She's like, oh, yeah, those AHA folks, folks abolish human abortion. I always just mute them or block them. Like, I, I can't stand them because of mm-hmm. the way that they behave. So, yeah, I mean, what are we looking at? Just yeah. honestly, I mean, if, sincerely, if warts and answer. all. What are we like as far as this, this, mm-hmm. the issue of how people perceive each other? 
Like what is happening? Yeah. Well, with people like Abby Johnson, it's absolutely like, I mean, I think that there was a big sort of infamous thread recently on Laura Claussen's post and Abby Johnson was involved and there's all this kind of stuff. And And Laura Claussen is, remind me, she's. Uh, she's the choices for, I can't remember the name of her organization. She's the, she's the pink haired lady that does the magical fallopian tube video. <laughs> you oh, know, right, knows. right, right. I think um, it's like choice for two or something like that. Yeah, choice for two. And, um, you know, she was sort of like asking these abolitionist minded questions and talking about some abolitionist that she had talked to and uh, an abolitionist book that she had read and she's doing all that. And then of course, pro-lifers, um, can see that one of their own is starting to think these things. And so they immediately just say, no, 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 you can't think this thing. Those people are all mean and all bad and they're all awful and all this kind of stuff. Well, this is all going on. And then someone tells me about it. Um, or I see a pro-lifer say something like, you know, on this thread, all these abolitionists are being so awful. And I go to the thread and there's like hundreds of comments, but the abolitionists aren't being awful. They're being straightforward. Um, they're saying things like, yes, abortion is murder, it's sin, and the gospel's the answer. <laughs> and all these pro-lifers are being sort of really awful. But in the midst of being awful, they're saying the reason they're not abolitionists is because abolitionists are awful. I think there is some of that that is like what I'm saying. It sounds conspiratorial, but like they literally are involved in like, I don't want people to listen to these people, so I'm going to say that they've done things. Most of the time I say, what? Give me a specific example of these quote unquote AHAers that are doing whatever they're doing and show me some evidence that they did this and that you're not, you weren't being awful, you know, and I, they never really provide it. It's this sort of nebulous. This person said this. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't somebody somewhere at some time who's acted that way, but I would say that, and, and everyone wants to believe that, you know, no one wants to believe no, no, no. By and large, there's a group of people who do have the right view. And even when they've made missteps in the way they've acted, the real reason that we all hate them is because we're wrong. Like people, people don't do that. People don't like admitting, oh, we've sunk millions of dollars into supporting the rape exception. And the people who come along saying, stop murdering children for the sins of their fathers. They, we could say it nicely. We could say it harshly. They're going to, to dislike it. And they're going to say all manner of evil things about us. I mean, but do so, you think so, there's a? Do you think though that there's like a cage stage of abolitionism, like the way yeah, that gonna, when people yeah, when yeah. people become Calvinists, there's like this infamous cage stage where like mm. they can't stop. I'm sure the Babylon Bee has some clever articles on it, but like yeah. you know they yeah, yeah. they can't stop like shoving it in people's faces and like being really obnoxious about it. Yeah, and then I'd say that's true. Uh, you know, there's. Now that doesn't that doesn't remove the um, <laughs> you know if 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 the person who's cage stage or obnoxious about something is right well it's still kind of on you right you know I mean the person who came running into my church uh, screaming like a crazy person because someone was raping someone in the parking lot may be annoying until I realize oh no someone's raping someone in the parking lot um, maybe they have the right maybe they they are responding rightly to the view but the cage stage thing whenever somebody comes into knowledge about something they think is super super important and they get out there them and their friends and they sort of pile onto a thread um i think it can be annoying 
for the people on the other side of the issue. I'm not denying that at all. But um, but the proper response to that isn't to go, listen, these cage stage people came to me with this truth. And so therefore, I'm going to spend the next decade saying how bad their truth is. You know, if you think that what they're saying is true, but you're not going to join them because they've been behaving badly. Well, that's ridiculous. You should join them and behave properly. Um, it besides be based what, on, okay. So what, besides, uh, besides this, this issue of, of pro-lifers spreading certain perceptions about abolition, um, abolitionists, what, what else do what, what are the, what are the other, what are the biggest hangups for, mm-hmm. for people coming into yeah. this like you said that if you just get them to look at it if you just get them to look at the issue well what keeps people from looking at the issue well that so they're encouraged not to look at it um by the stuff that we've been talking about but um now when they start to look at it and and I'm just speaking from experience when I really do have someone who's really looking at it really dialoguing really talking about you know what works or something generally if they're not like working for a pro-life organization or something like that, they come along and they get it. Now it may take them a while and they may have hangups because of things that they've been taught or they've believed for so long. Some people um, will kind of go, you know what? I agree, but there's this sort of thing that like they say they devoted 20 years of their life to these pro-life ideas and they've got awards. They've been persecuted for arguing for these pro-life things. And and then they come along and they're like, huh, you know, I I think I was wrong. And some of that stuff hasn't borne any fruit. But they don't want to say it's like totally evil. And the abolitionist is like, no, ultrasound laws are totally evil. <laughs> and um, and the new abolitionist kind of says, I don't I'm not ready to call it evil um, because they weren't when they were doing the pro-life stuff, doing it for evil reasons, they were doing it for good right. reasons. And so there, there is, there is that. And so it takes some time to sort of like square up, you know, past actions. Um, but if the person doesn't have pride and they can kind of humble themselves, they go, listen, I wasn't doing it for evil reasons, but I see now that it, that it, that it outside of me and my motives turns out to be evil. And this, I mean, I, one of the the former head of the Republican Party in Oklahoma and the former legislator and gubernatorial candidate Randy Brogdon passed our you know you have to look at an ultrasound first law um, you know is a I spent a lot of time with him while working on the Dan Fisher campaign and over time persuaded him that abolitionism was better than um, incrementalism and regulationism and eventually whenever people bring up ultrasound laws he weeps. He says that I gave my, you know, that whole legislative session to passing that ultrasound law because I thought I was serving God and saving babies. But now every abortion that takes place in Oklahoma since then is done in accordance with my ultrasound law. So all the abortions that are taking place meet my criteria. I didn't stop them. And so, you know, he thinks of the 5,000 babies aborted every year in Oklahoma as being something that he thought he was curtailing but he hasn't. Um, and, and so he's able to really say, you know, I was wrong, even though he recognizes that he wasn't doing it for wrong reasons. He changes his mind 
um, about what ought to be done and says, and he moves on. Um, some people, right. Right. I think, have but a isn't law. there isn't there also this 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 element that abolitionism is Christian, and there are a lot of pro-lifers who are not Christian, or they may like loose, they may like nominally call themselves Christian, but they're not. Mm-hmm. They're not born again, and and so yeah. I mean, wouldn't it? Is it virtually impossible to convince somebody that abortion should be abolished right now if they aren't a Christian? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like oversell it. I mean, I do think that a lot of this is knowledge that uh, you know sort of comes from having the Spirit of God dwelling in you. You know, I mean, the the non Christian. Who is because like so you just look at sort of the odds of it, you know, like the pro-lifer who says, no, this is just impossible. We have to bow down to the Supreme Court. They seem to be really powerful. And the the federal government they seem to be really powerful. You guys are basically saying stand up against them. And that doesn't make any sense. Like you're a Goliath and you're just a David with some stones like you're out of your mind. They don't have that faith to help them sort of I'm going to do what's right and fight the evil even though the odds seem stacked against me. So sort of like that other abolitionist tenet of being providence minded instead of pragmatism, sort of like, we know it's right. We know what we ought to do. Duty is ours. Results belong to God. I'm going to go fight Goliath with stones. That's a distinctly Christian sort of attitude. Um, And I'm not going to pretend that people who don't believe in an active living God are going to go out and fight evil without compromise. Um, they are the beneficiaries of people who stood up and fought evil without compromise because they believed in God. Um, like our world is built by such people. You don't have the abolition of slavery without people saying exactly the same things. The Goliath of slavery, I'm going to go take it down. Everyone else saying like, you can't. And them saying, oh, I will um, about these previous evils. So faith, understanding that God's a a living and active agent in the world and wants us to go about things in a certain way and will actually oppose us if we go about it in a, in a, in a bad way um, is important. We say, well, given that most people aren't Christians, does this ever have a chance? Well, yes, it does. Cause we're not, we don't, we don't need a hundred percent of the culture to become Christian. We need the professing Christians to be actively Christian doing what God says and God shows up and helps them. But God's not going to show up and help us, you know, compromise with abortion. He hates it. He's not going to show up and help us uh, pass a law that allows children to be raped for the sins of their parents. Um, he opposes that. So we don't need everyone to become Christian. We just need the Christians to be Christian. So let's say this is this is the last question. Let's say that you're sitting on a bus next to a pro-lifer and she's carrying a sign that says, I'm, I'm pro-life, like this is the pro-life generation. And this pro-lifer notices that you have your, your abolish human abortion t-shirt on and Mm -hmm. you guys get to talking and she's clearly an incrementalist Mm -hmm. and her stop is coming up pretty soon and you just have a few minutes. How would you go about getting this person to look at the issue the way that an abolitionist does and to look at those arguments? 
See, I was hoping that you said that her stop was really far away and you had lots of time. <laughs> nope. <laughs> because she, the predisposition is that you're bad. Like she's she's already expecting that you're some wild-eyed, crazy, bad person. And that, you know, it's going to take you some time to get her to actually listen to you because she's been told anyone who's got this AHA symbol on is some kind of a loony or some kind of really mean person. So now let's say that you don't have to go through that. You know, you don't have, I mean, I've had to sit down with people and talk to them for like hours before they go, you know what? You're not actually insane. I've been told so many times that you were insane or you were going to bite my throat off and you're not, you know, and then finally you, okay, let's get into the conversation. So (laughs) outside of that, um, you know, she's, she's sitting there, say she's what, what's I'm the pro-life generation or whatever. Um, and I've got just a few minutes. Um, you know, I, I probably open with some kind of something along the lines of, you know, if she asked me if I'm pro-life or whatever, I I'll say, no, I'm not pro-life. And she'll go, Oh, and you know, she'll want to convince me to be pro-life. Right. I go, I'm not pro-life. And she's like, well, that, you know, I don't know what she would say. And I say like, I believe abortion is murder. And that it ought to be abolished. And she's like, well, that's what I mean by pro-life. And I say, well, lots of pro-lifers don't seem to call it murder or treat it as murder. And if it's murder, do you think that we should allow it in any case? And just kind of ask the questions and let her come to the conclusion like that the pro-life stuff that she's sometimes supporting doesn't really treat it as murder. Um So if I just have a little bit of time, I want to get someone thinking so that later on, whenever, say, she's going to a pro-life rally and the speaker after speaker gets up there and says, you know, abortion hurts women and we need to pass this law because um, it'll it'll help women. And then she's just been on the bus with some Yahoo who says, you know, abortion's murder and there's forgiveness for the sin of murder and, you know, some of that stuff that we had talked about earlier. I want to get them to like listen to what their actual leaders, their actual literature says. And and if you can get them thinking that way, you don't have to convince them of all the arguments. It's kind of like a that 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 180 happens. Like once you start thinking about abortion consistently as murder and sin, you stop doing certain things. You know, like one of the legislators that I've worked with says, I would have never written that bill if I had to write, you can murder your baby if you do it 10 miles away from a hospital or within five miles of a hospital. I would have never written, I would have never passed that bill, but I wasn't thinking of it that way. So I'd probably just, if I'd probably want to plant the seed on the murder thing and ask her, as you're going about, your support of these different pro-lifers look and see are they treating it like murder or are they treating it in the end like healthcare? are they trying to make it safe legal and rare like the pro-choicers are they really trying to abolish it um so wouldn't be much of an argument but i'd want to ask questions that that led her down that road no it's 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 all very interesting to me well russell thank you so much for joining me today it has been a pleasure and absolutely fascinating. And I think that the listener who is pro-life is listening to this and has gotten all the way to the end that they have a brain full of stuff to think about. And that is the goal of this podcast. 
You can follow Abolish Human Abortion at Abolition AHA. You can find out more about AHA at AbolishHumanAbortion.com. And if you want to look at the traditional pro-life mainstream approach on another website, just to give a counterpoint, um, though it's not, you know, billed exactly as such, you can check out NRLC.org, which is the National Right to Life website. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at 180Cast, and you can give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. It would be so helpful. It only takes a couple minutes, and whatever you think about this podcast, even if you hate it, you know what? I'm willing. I Just lodge your complaint. I would love to hear about it. Um, and if you are super outraged about this episode... Or if you really liked this episode or anything in between, you can call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802. You can flip out on me or not, um, or try to flip my position or tell me about your own flip-flop slash 180 story or recommend other flip-flop 180 stories, 323-999-1802. You can also follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. I'm a senior contributor at The Federalist where I've written extensively about abortion by sort of digging beneath the talking points and asking why things are the way that they are. And my friend James Silberman, who is also a, an abolitionist, is frequently published there as well as at The Resurgent. So quick free plug for James. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see who I am and what I need, who I've got to In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am and what I need. Executive producer, Kevin McCullough. Music by Ruthie Kraft and Joachim Nordenson. Who I am and what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am and what I need.